Chapter 6 Seven winters had passed. The pain had subsided, but the memories remained. Steady your aim. Breathe out. Hold. Release. Kenneth gave the command. The arrow flew straight but missed the mark by a good four feet. How did I do? Donald, now ten, asked his older brother, hoping for approval. You did well, quite well for a young lad, Kenneth replied. Every large barn in Dalriada now has good right to fear you. The others laughed. They enjoyed watching young Donald attempt his skill with the bow. The bow Donald held was smaller than a common bow, but it could still harm a man if ever its arrow found its mark. Donald reveled in the attention. He enjoyed being with his older brothers. He enjoyed laughing with them. The warmth of the sun felt good that morning. It was a good day for being with family and friends. It was good to be outdoors again, shooting arrows and taking in life. Winter had passed and spring had come. The daffodils had burst forth, displaying their gentle yellow petals. They speckled the landscape here and there, finding a home beneath the cool shade of the budding black elders. The reed buntings, sporting their handsome black caps, flitted among the treetops. The spring season had brought hope and warmth and life. The red-breasted robins joined the chatter, soaking in the new morning and calling to one another with clicks and chirps. Yet it was the pyramidal orchids that made the grandest announcement, declaring to all their presence. The orchids' pastel blooms glimmered with a palette of pinks and purples as they nestled among the rolling green plains of Renton. Their odiferous scent boldly heralded their arrival. The spring season offered a new hope for those who would receive it. It was the dawning of the seventh spring since Droston's death. Time had passed, and though scars had formed, the cuts weren't as tender as in the early years, since losing Droston, when a memory could strike the heart with a sudden sadness and rob the soul of joy. Yes, the spring offered a new hope to press on with life and look ahead to the seasons to come. The three older boys had grown into men. They were boys no longer. The loss had broken them, and the healing had reshaped them, each into his own man. And though each walked with a limp all their own, at least they were walking. For Alpin it was different. His mountains were giants and his valleys devils. Life was a struggle in the season following Droston's death. Were it not for Luag, Alpin may have remained despondent. It was Luag who regularly coaxed Alpin and their older sons to escape Renton, and do what men were supposed to do, hunt. The hunts were not simply good for providing food, they were also good for clearing the mind and healing the soul. Droston would be proud of you, Donald, Chorich hollered to his little brother. Then he jumped down from his sunny perch atop a jagged rock and ambled across the grass to Donald, and the others. Indeed, he would be proud, Alpin said, sitting on a fallen log that he shared with Luag. The two men sat rightly, like judges in a contest, heckling the boys whenever an arrow missed its mark. The boys took turns with the bow, each trying to prove his worth. They were shooting at more than targets, they were shooting for posture, shooting for manhood. Donald, if you come that close at thirty feet, you'll be dropping deer from a galloping horse before you're twelve. I pity the little buggers, Chorich said. Kenneth chuckled. That's right Donald, quite right. I'm next, Chorich said as he bent over and pulled an arrow from the quiver. In just a moment, Aidan uttered in an even, measured voice as he pulled back his bowstring and aimed. He pointed the arrow's iron tip at the small, half-eaten apple perched beside the wooden shield Donald had targeted.
Sirk hovered behind Aiden, watching over his shoulder. Sirk aligned the arrow and the apple in his own line of sight and closed one eye. Imagine the apple is the throat of a Briton, he muttered and then snickered with a tinge of spite. I'm trying to focus, Aiden replied, his voice remaining steady. He leveled his arrow, and aimed at the top half of the distant apple. Come Aiden, take down them blokes. Sirk groused. Let it rest, Sirk, Aiden replied. The release came quick and smooth. The arrow flew high, sailing inches over the fleshy brown apple core. Not bad, Chorich said with a nod. Aiden moved aside, and Chorich stepped forward to take a turn. Mind if I have a go? Chorich seated the arrow in the cord of his bow and lifted his arms to aim. I'm going for the shield, but keep your eyes on the center, because that's where she'll land. He drew back the cord, flexing the bow with a steadied aim, exhaled, and released. Thunk! His arrow clipped the edge of the shield and buried itself in the dead log behind it. Breeze took it, he exclaimed before the others could begin their hazing. Chorich, were your eyes closed? Luag asked, spurring a round of laughter. Maybe you could take a few lessons from Donald, Alpin noted. The young boy peered at his father, wearing a smile from ear to ear. Ronan, why don't you give it a try, Luag called to his son and waved him forward. Ronan glanced at his father and then at the two targets in the distance. It would be my pleasure. Ronan, Luag's only son, was twenty-three. He was a few months younger than Chorich. Having no brothers of his own, Ronan had always considered Chorich and Kenneth his closest companions. Ronan was particularly close to Chorich, as the two commonly ventured off together to hunt. Ronan was a quick-witted, competitive young man, and he was also very good with his hands. He could whittle a bow from a crooked stick and could skin a deer before its heart stopped beating, though he never did. Indeed, he made for a fine hunting partner. Ronan picked up his bow and strode to where Chorich was standing. Nice bow, Alpin said. Ronan scanned the lean wooden bow he held and admired it for himself. You would, made it with my own two hands. He set his arrow and pulled back the bowstring. He gazed at the backdrop of trees and then focused on his target. The arrow released. Thunk! The arrow borrowed into the wooden shield, eight inches from the center mark. Ronan lowered the bow and turned to his audience. Now you know where to come for help. Lucky shot, Chorich moaned. Pure luck. Jealousy is unbecoming, Alpin chided. Jealousy. That was nothing but luck, a friendly wind. May I? The tall man from Milton interrupted. It was Les. He had come with his father, mother, and sister to Renton for the wedding. Nice bow. Mind if I try? He said with a smile and extended his hands. Sure. Ronan handed Les the bow and stepped back to his seat. Les took a moment to inspect the bow. He plucked the string delicately and then pulled it to test the draw, each time pulling it back farther. Satisfied, he knelt beside the quiver and withdrew the remaining arrows, aligning them next to one another in a single row. One by one, he began sifting through the arrows, testing each for weight and balance. Holding the last arrow, he paused and measured it a bit longer. Then he clasped it in his fist, smiled, and stood. The others gazed in anticipation, mesmerized by the respected archer's meticulous process. Les assumed a bowman's stance, 
back straight and feet separated with the forefoot pointed slightly outward. He drew back the arrow in a single graceful motion, like a master musician strumming an instrument before an eager audience. The veins in Les's forearms bulged as he held the readied arrow in a frozen pose. No one spoke. Every eye remained fixed on the tall bowman from Milton. He marked his target, the small one. Then, drawing a deep breath, he exhaled and released. The arrow vanished in a blur. Gone. The apple was gone. Claps sounded and cheers erupted. Alpin and Luag rose from their seats to join the applause. Les nodded his head and bowed. That's how we do it in Milton. You need to come hunting with us more often, Luag said above the cheers. Then you wouldn't have to return empty-handed so often, Luag, Alpin said with a generous smile. He turned to Chorich, I hope you were taking notes, son. Since you'll be spending more time with Les, maybe he could give you some lessons. If he'll teach me how to use a bow, then I'll teach him how to use a sword, Chorich replied. So I suppose that's the real reason you wanted to marry his sister, to improve on the bow. You could have asked for lessons and spared yourself a lot of trouble, Alpin teased. Father, Chorich's interest in the bow pales to his interest in Siana, Kenneth said. I think his shot is so poor because his vision is so clouded. You're a fine one to talk, Kenneth, Chorich rebutted. I'm surprised you're here with the men, thought you'd be doting on Arabella rather than joining us for sport. Kenneth's face reddened. Well, someone needed to come and make a good showing for the family, Kenneth stammered, groping for a suitable response. Alpin lifted his hands to catch the attention of the younger men. That was good shooting, especially from you Les. I'm glad our families are uniting. Chorich has made a wise decision, and I won't mind having you on my side with that kind of shooting. He glanced up at the midday sun sitting high in the spring sky. Let's gather our things. It's time to head back, I'm certain the women are getting anxious. Hold still, hold still, Sorsha fussed at Siana as she fastened the last button on her daughter's dress. Siana took a deep breath. She stopped fidgeting long enough to let her mother finish the button and fluff the ruffle that circled her waist. Arabella stood in the doorway, watching Sorsha and Nessa dawn the bride. You are beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Chorich is fortunate to have such a lovely bride, Arabella said, entranced by Siana, and the thought of marriage. I don't feel beautiful. I feel as if I'm a mess, Siana replied, never more conscious of her appearance than now, on her wedding day. She had always been self-conscious, ever since she was a young girl when she had fallen on the rocks at the river in Milton. The fall had left a jagged scar below her right eye. It was a raised scar, roughly an inch in length. It had always made her feel less than beautiful. It's true. You're radiant. Chorich will faint when he sees you, Nessa said. She stood behind Siana, brushing the bride's soft, sandy brown hair. Excuse me, Arabella, Ina said, moving past Arabella, and stepping into the room. The stew is done and, well don't you look like a princess? Ina exclaimed. I don't recall seeing a more beautiful bride in all of Dalriada. Siana blushed and turned her cheek to one side, a habit of hers when others took notice. The women stepped back to inspect Siana. Their eyes combed the young lady, hunting for imperfections. Sorsha stooped beside Siana's feet and straightened her daughter's dress, fixing the last wrinkle in the delicate fabric. 
The others watched with critical eyes to ensure the wrinkle was properly addressed. Siana fiddled with her top button for a moment, then released the button and gazed at her mother. Mother, she asked, will I make Chorich happy? Sorsha stood and spun her daughter to face her. Young lady. You are beautiful. Your beauty surpasses that of the rose, your heart is as kind as a child's, and your mind is more clever than any man's. Sorsha said and smiled at her daughter. If you do not capture his heart with your beauty or charm, then you will outwit him into believing you have. The women burst into laughter. Arabella laughed the hardest. She enjoyed being with the women. She enjoyed seeing Siana in her wedding gown and fussing over every detail. Her mind began to stir with visions of marriage and being a bride of her own. She thought of Kenneth. They had played together often as children and she had taken note of how he had always shown a fondness toward her. She enjoyed the attention he paid her and how he would often make much of her. Her thoughts carried her away. Knock, knock. Someone's at the door, Nessa exclaimed. Her eyes widened with excitement. Well, lassie, see who it is, Ina fussed, and she shooed Arabella toward the door. Arabella hurried from the room. When she reached the door, she opened it to find Ferragus, the blacksmith, dangling two corded necklaces from his lofted hand. Each necklace held a cross, one of gold, one of silver. Here your arm, the necklace is for your wedding, Ferragus said between his crooked, yellow teeth. Oh, no, not my wedding. Arabella blushed at the thought. But yes, for the family wedding, thank you. She extended her hand and took the necklaces from the blacksmith. She smiled and shut the door. Holding the two crosses, one in each hand, she studied them closely, noting the finely cut edges of the glistening metal that boasted a craftsmanship found only in the rarest of treasures. Siana, the crosses from the blacksmith, they're here, Arabella called out. She left the front door and rushed to the makeshift bridal room. I should say they're quite remarkable, she announced as she entered, lifting the necklaces for the others to see. They're perfect. Chorich will be so happy. Siana took the necklaces and ran her fingers along their polished faces. Mother, these are the gifts for Kenneth and Aidan, gifts for the groom's men. The gold one is for Kenneth and the silver one is for Aidan. They are handsome gifts. The boys will be proud to have them, Sorsha replied. The women each took turns admiring the two crosses, holding them to their necks as if wearing them for themselves. Ina was the last to examine the necklaces. She held the cross of gold into the air and then suddenly paused. The sound of approaching horses caught her ear. She quickly stepped to the window and gasped, Nessa, here comes your father and the others. We must finish here. They'll be calling on us soon, Sorsha said. She gazed at Siana and smiled reassuringly. Nessa, fetch the bouquet. Arabella, draw some fresh water from the well. Quickly girls, quickly. Ina gave the orders, and the younger girls flitted about like swallows preparing for a storm. Arabella grabbed a pail and left the women to fetch the water. The door slammed behind her as she hurried outside. She hustled past the storehouse and headed to the well. At the well, Arabella found the well bucket tied to the framing post. She tugged the rope to loosen it, but it's not only tightened. Setting down her pail, she leaned against the waist-high stone wall to unknot the rope. The young man hiding behind the storehouse did not speak when she passed, he only watched. He watched her pass by. 
He watched her tug on the knotted rope. He watched her set down the pail and lean against the well to untie the knot. Her slender figure was beautiful. Her white skin was beautiful. Her brown hair, cascading down her shoulders, it was all beautiful. He remained silent in the shadow of the storehouse. Who did this? Arabella muttered aloud as she fought the knot that bound the rope. Arabella! Arabella heard Ina call from the house. I'll be right there, she called back. Ouch! A sharp, pain stung Arabella's finger. She glanced at her fingernail, and its torn nail tip. Without a thought, she lifted her hand and removed the torn nail with her teeth. From the corner of her eye, she glimpsed a shadow inching up the wall of the well. Then, suddenly, two strong arms grabbed her waist and lifted her off the ground. Ah! She cried. Bella! Relief rushed over her. Kenneth set her down and turned her in his arms. Kenneth, you scared me to death. He smiled at her. Why were you scared? I wouldn't let anybody get you. Still clutching Arabella in his arms, Kenneth stepped backward and pulled her with him. A grin formed on his face when she resisted. I have to get the water. Your mother's going to fuss. He pulled her closer. My mother can wait. She'll get her water when. Kenneth suddenly tripped on the pail, stumbled backwards, and fell. Arabella fell with him and landed on top when the two hit the ground. Glad I could soften your fall, Kenneth said, unable to conceal his smile. Kenneth, I can't believe you. You're supposed to be with the others, getting ready for tonight. Arabella stared at him and then giggled. You have made a mess of me. What am I going to do? You look like a princess ready for a coronation. You don't need to do anything, save fix your hair here, and there, and over here, Kenneth teased Arabella. Truly, you're lovely, he stopped and stared when his eyes caught hers. Arabella stared back at Kenneth, following his eyes as he traced her face. She waited. Her eyes were a deep green. Her lips were fashioned with supple lines that turned with the curve of her smile. Her cheeks were slender and well-crafted, making her lovely. You are beautiful, truly beautiful. The words in Kenneth's mind were so loud he was certain she heard him. Arabella stared at him. And she waited. Then Kenneth slowly lifted his head, closed his eyes, and kissed her. The press of his lips against hers sent a shot through Arabella's heart like a magic spell cast upon her, forever binding the two as one. Her mind went blank, and she pressed her lips deep into his. Her lips were tender and sweet, their very touch struck Kenneth like a jolt from heaven. All of his life came to this moment, and he could not stop kissing her. He lifted his hands to cup her face as their lips held one another's. Arabella, Nessa called. Did you get the water, Arabella? Oh my, the water! Arabella whispered, pulling away from his kiss. She lifted her head and yelled, I'm over here Nessa. I am getting the water. I'll be right there. She couldn't keep from smiling at Kenneth. Then the two jumped to their feet, and Arabella dusted off her dress and straightened her hair. I'll get the rope untied? Get the pail ready. Kenneth pointed at the pail and then hurried to untie the knot. He worked the rope, but the knot was too tight. He dismissed the knot and let go of the rope, eyeing Arabella. He wanted to kiss her again. She was waiting for him. Kenneth smiled at her. 
Arabella smiled back. And then she caught herself. Will you hurry? I'm going to get in trouble. Luag's home made for a suitable spot for Chorich to prepare for his wedding. As the groom, he would have to clean up properly, and be well-shaven and handsomely presentable. Luag's wife had insisted that Chorich use their home to allow the women their necessary privacy at Alpin's home. Chorich sat on a footstool alone in the room where Luag's family normally slept. His mind danced with a hundred thoughts as he rose and paced to the window. Outside, the rolling countryside lay peacefully beneath the afternoon sunshine and the early stalks of spring barley had sprouted. He paused and stared at the field and its polka dots of gold. Gazing out the open window brought forward a montage of childhood memories, the smells, the sounds, all that Renton offered a young boy. How many times had he raced his brothers and Ronan across the fields, each hoping that they had what it took to be the victor? How many trees had he climbed with Kenneth and Droston? How many sprinting jumps had he made into the river, trying to splash his brothers? He thought of the battles that he and Droston and the others had pretended to fight, the forts they had built, and the wooden swords they had carved. All of that had passed. Those days were tucked away in another time and place. He missed them? He missed his brother. Droston would have been proud of Chorich, standing ready for marriage, a man of twenty-three years, preparing to receive his bride. Droston would have been twenty-eight years old this year. He would have taken a wife and fathered children of his own by now, he would have already lived his wedding day. And had Droston been present, he likely would have devised some clever test for Chorich, some rite of passage for him to prove himself. Chorich would never know. What was done could never be undone. What would Droston say if he were here today? Chorich wondered, picturing his brother's hands on his shoulders while speaking to him of battle, and manhood, and women, and God. The wooden door of the room scraped the floor as it opened. Chorich. How are you? Alpin asked, entering the room. Chorich returned from his distant world, Father, I am well, I was just thinking about things. This is a big day for you, and for Siana, and for our families. Yes, Father, yes, yes it is, Chorich stumbled on his words. Is something the matter? No, Father, no, all is well, I need to finish dressing, Chorich replied. I won't keep you. But as your father, I wanted to take a moment to offer you some words that should prove helpful in the days ahead, Alpin said with a steady, purposed voice. That is, should you choose to heed them. He smiled and waited for a response. Chorich struggled to return a smile. Chorich, need I say how pleased your mother and I are with you. You are a fine man, a brave man, and you have much wisdom and courage. Siana is a fortunate woman. You are my oldest living son. Droston has rested. The family looks to you to rise up and carry the leadership of the family in the years ahead. But father, Chorich interrupted, I don't have that right. I have not earned it. It's Droston's right, I shall not take that from him. Chorich, you did not take it from him, your brother has given it to you. His sacrifice was for you and for me and for all of us. When he took up his sword at A, he understood the consequences. He was willing to pay the price expected of a warrior. He did it to protect the freedom of Dalriada, a cause he was willing to fight for, and even die for. His blood was not shed in vain. Chorich winced at his father's words. Alpin stepped aside from Chorich and looked about the room. 
Turning to face Chorich, he spoke with measured intent, Chorich, Drosten gave what he gave, so you could have what you have. Drosten willingly, knowingly, did this. He fought for his family, for his brothers, for our homeland, and for the freedom to enjoy them in peace. Take what he has given you and live it with all your might. Chorich, sat down on the edge of the bed. He thought of his brother and then gazed up at his father. I understand? I know what Drosten has done. I will make him proud? Chorich's words hung in the air. His cheeks tightened and he swallowed. And father, I will make you proud, he said. Alpin nodded his head, affirming his son. Chorich, I'm already proud. Dalriadans both young and old lined the path traversing the village of Renton. They stood shoulder to shoulder, awaiting the commencement of the marriage procession. Each wore their finest adornments, for this was Renton's first wedding in three years. Shops and buildings of stone and wood formed the backdrop behind the villagers on either side of the path. The structures were an appropriate visage of Renton's humble heritage. As well, the buildings to the west served as a suitable shade from the warm, late afternoon sun. Conversational murmurs buzzed in the air as word spread that the procession was nearing. Then the loud sound of cheers and applause erupted when Donald, leading a stark white mare, turned the corner at the edge of town. Happy sounds of bagpipes and flutes, lofting above the noise of the crowd, complemented the exuberant cheers, the procession had arrived. Chorich and Siana appeared after Donald. The two rounded the corner walking hand in hand. Siana waved to the people to the left and right, while Chorich stared ahead in stoic form, occasionally glancing at his bride. The two paced behind Donald as the procession migrated toward Renton's abbey. The bridesmaids of the party, including Arabella, followed the wedding couple, while Kenneth and Aidan walked as escorts alongside the ladies. To complete the festivities, the young girls of the village, anxious to participate, tossed pink autumn joys into the street as the procession passed. Arabella vicariously absorbed it all, even slowing on occasion to collect the flowers that landed near her. Weddings had always been festive in Renton, and this marriage came with heightened excitement, as Chorich, son of Alpin, embarked upon a holy union. It was an important matter to the people of Renton, for Alpin, a respected leader, was regarded by many as the head of Dalriada, a title Alpin would not claim for himself. The union also held importance to more than Renton. In taking the hand of Siana, daughter of Lathan of Milton, Chorich would forge a bond between two of Dalriada's leading villages. Upon reaching the abbey, the wedding members fanned out like wings on either side of the abbey's stone steps. The men took their place to the right, facing the entrance of the abbey, and the women stood opposite to the left. As custom dictated, the cleric would perform the wedding ceremony outside the abbey in the native language of Dalriada. This was to be followed by a second service inside the abbey. There, the service would be performed in Latin, the language spoken by the clergy in the house of God. Gilchrist climbed the steps of the abbey, and a quiet hush fell over the people. The clergyman nodded and surveyed the eager faces before him, with each returning an anxious smile. The ladies in the wedding party were the most excited, and the most lovely. Arabella and Nessa wore cream-colored gowns and both wore their hair tucked properly in a bun. The two stood side by side, giddy with the enthusiasm of young maidens. Siana was no less giddy, and on this day, she was radiant, her hesitation gone like mist vanishing in the morning sun. Her hair hung neatly in thick braids, woven with flowers and white ribbons, while her long white gown reached the ground and hid her feet. 
She held a bouquet adorned with delicate yellow daffodils and white wild flowers that had been gathered by the young girls and given to the bride as a gift. Kenneth and Aidan carried the appearance of statesmen, standing in orderly fashion beside their brother. The three appeared virile and strong. The boyish softness and charm of youth had melded into the sober ruggedness of manhood. Kenneth wore his cross of gold and Aidan his cross of silver. In accordance with and tradition, the groomsmen sported ceremonial weapons. Kenneth carried an axe, a tool for dropping trees and shaping wood to provide for one's family. The instrument also doubled as a weapon, symbolizing the preparedness of a man even amidst his daily tasks. Aidan donned a bow, a weapon designed to engage an opponent from a distance, demonstrating a readiness to defend oneself and one's family. The bow also served as a tool for gathering provisions, such as hunting game. Chorich, the bridegroom, bore a sword. Custom assigned the sword to the groom, the man of honor. The instrument was one of focused purpose, designed purely to fight and defend. With the sword, Chorich displayed to his bride, and all witnessing, that he was willing to fight for her, to defend her and her honor to the death. The wedding members, both beautiful and strong, stood anxious at the abbey's stone steps. They faced Gilchrist, with Chorich and the groomsmen to the right and Siana, and the bridesmaids to the left. Standing in such an arrangement allowed the groom to keep his right arm free in order to take up his sword, should he need to defend his bride during the ceremony. As customary in times of peace, the groom was to hand his sword to his first man to begin the ceremony. The act represented his willingness to put down the sword and dispel his appetite for battle, a declaration that the groom was offering his whole heart to his bride. This was custom. Chorich broke from custom. Gazing at Gilchrist, Chorich lifted his blade. I hold this sword today in remembrance of Droston, my brother. He and others have given much, so that on this day, we could have much. May Droston, and those brave men of Dalriada, be honored. Chorich lowered his sword and held it at his side. Gilchrist nodded, acknowledging Chorich. Then the clergyman's eyes turned to the party gathered before him. Good people of Renton, we unite today to witness a most holy ceremony before God and man, Gilchrist addressed the crowd of Scots. They had come from as far north as Cashel and as far south as Milton. Chorich and Siana have joined together before us to seek a covenant and God's blessing of that covenant. In the eyes of God, a covenant is a sacred promise. Often, a man makes a promise. He gives his word and seeks to keep and honor that word. In time, a man often finds himself lacking, wanting, unable to secure the fidelity, diligence, and resolve to preserve the words of his spoken promise. As such, how can a man, a sinful man, a broken vessel of a man, find the fortitude to stand fast in his word and hold to the surety of his promise? I tell you he cannot. Such a man is utterly bereft of the strength required for such a glorious endeavor. That is, by himself he is powerless, powerless without the hand of Almighty God, and his Christ, to provide the much-needed strength. In such a predicament, a man must seek God, he must seek help from the Lord above. As so, on this day, Chorich has sought the aid of his Father in heaven to meet him in his humble time of need. Chorich now stands here before you, and before me, before God in heaven, to seek the blessings, the grace, and the power of Christ, to secure his covenant with his beloved Siana, a covenant that, in God's mercy, shall be a lasting covenant that rejoices in prosperity and endures in trials. What we witness today is a promise given in faith, in hope, and in love, and with God as their guarantor, a promise that shall survive throughout this life unto death. 
Gilchrist's voice continued with his message of hope, filling the cool evening air. At first, the cleric's words tickled Arabella's eager ears, but soon her fanciful thoughts carried her to a distant daydream. The swirling words of the clergyman faded to a hum and her attention wandered and settled on Siana. The evening sunshine fell gently on the bride's shoulders and flowed onto the white wildflowers entwined neatly into the braids of her sandy brown hair. Arabella determined that she would adorn herself the same on her wedding day, someday. She let her thoughts carry her father away, where she no longer heard sounds but only saw images passing by in her mind's eye. She saw Kenneth holding her, peering into her eyes. His expression was strong, but tender. He pulled her close to him, and he bent to press his lips against hers. Her thoughts suddenly broke and scattered in her mind. Her past came forward to the very day she comforted Kenneth at the Abbey seven years prior. That day was a cold, hard day. She let go of those thoughts and allowed her mind to focus on Kenneth and how he had surprised her at the well. She remembered how he grabbed her and stumbled and that wonderful feeling when he caught her and kissed her. She mused softly and giggled. The giggle startled her. She glanced to see if anyone had noticed. The others appeared intent on the cleric and his message. He was addressing Chorich, speaking of bravery and honor and duty. Arabella sighed in relief. She leaned forward ever so slightly to peek at Kenneth. He was staring back at her. The smile in his eyes embarrassed her, and she blushed and lowered her head. A moment passed, and then she peered up at Gilchrist and vowed that she would not let Kenneth, or thoughts of him, distract her again. That evening, Renton held a feast under Dalriada's open sky. The fading sun illuminated the horizon with streaks of magenta, and indigo emanating forth. The atmosphere was rich with a cheerfulness that had long been absent from Renton, especially Alpin's household. Venison and lamb cooked over two large, open fires, filling the air with an appetizing aroma. Children ran about, playing hide-and-seek, where every tree was a gameful hiding spot. The men and women sat and ate, trading stories of children and marriage and telling tales of their own husbands and wives. Often, the stories were embellished with charitable recollections designed to exaggerate their spousal plights. As the plates grew empty and bellies grew full, Lathan pushed back his chair and rose before the crowded wedding table. Being the father of the bride, he called the party to attention. The jovial mutter of conversation dulled to a hush. Lathan raised his wine glass and spoke, To all of you good people, on behalf of my family and those of Milton, I wish to convey my deep gratitude for your kindness to us on this fine day. What we have witnessed today was a sacred pledge between two special people, a pledge to one another, to God, and to the villages of Renton and Milton. Their pledge symbolizes a bond between our people, that together we shall remain happy, fertile, and strong. Lathan paused and gazed at his daughter. To my darling daughter, whom I have held with fondness since the day I first received you, you are a gift from above. It is as if God, himself, gave to me one of his angels. He smiled at Siana, the smile of an adoring father. Lathan turned to Chorich, and to you, Chorich, now my son, this is a happy day. We first met in sorrowful times, a time when we together mourned the loss of good men, courageous men. Your brother was among these men, he was a noble warrior. I am proud to have fought at his side. Dalriada honors his bravery and passion. And I see, too, that you are fashioned from that same rare mold, a man of courage and honor. I am happy for Siana and proud to receive you as my son. 
Lathan paused as claps of approval echoed from the gathered guests. Lathan spoke above the clapping hands. Please, please. Grant me but another moment. He turned to Alpin, Alpin, as I have spoken of Chorich's honor, I wish to also say, on behalf of my entire family, and the people of Milton, that my toast extends to you as well. Your wisdom, your courage, and your leadership are recognized far and wide throughout Dalriada. Your father before you and his father before him are praised as men of noble character, serving the cause of our beloved land. The name of your family is to be commended, and therefore it is my high privilege to grant you my daughter, as you have granted me your son. May he who watches over the sun and the moon and the stars, watch over these two and this great land we share. His words reached a crescendo and he lifted his glass high into the air. The table guests raised their wine glasses to join the toast, tapping glasses together up and down the table and following the toast with whistles and cheers. During the speech, Kenneth had been inspecting the handsome cross hanging from his neck. He quickly released the trinket and grabbed his glass to toast with Arabella, sitting across from him. As the cheers ended, he hurried to tap his glass to hers. The two vessels hit with a clank. Kenneth laughed at his clumsiness, and he winked at Arabella. Her lips pursed, she frowned, and then she returned her attention to Lathan. Kenneth had hoped for a different response, maybe an affectionate kiss lofted into the air and blown in his direction. He rested his wine glass on the table and stared at Arabella. He'd lost her attention completely. His brow furrowed as he studied her. As Lathan sat, Alpin rose. He smiled and addressed the attendants, kind people of Milton, friends of Renton, and countrymen of Dalriada. I am grateful for your presence this evening, joining my family as we begin a new dawn in our lives. I speak for Ina and my children, as well as myself, when I offer you our gratitude and affection. Please receive our warmest thanksgivings. We have been granted a lovely daughter, gifted with all grace and beauty, one who has been given a sharp mind and a caring heart of equal distinction. Alpin nodded at Siana, as he finished his words. Siana blushed and turned her head to the side to deflect the attention. Alpin's gaze fell to his son Chorich, who sat erect and attentive in the chair beside him. Chorich, my son, I see in your countenance that you have found the one who completes you. This is a blessing, son. From the day you first took a step, you were a fighter, and this is evident even today in your earnest pursuit of life. A warrior's heart is in your blood, as if it were destined in the heavens from eternity past. You have not deviated from this path in your pursuit in becoming a man. Your heart bears the strength of the lion and your sword the cunning of the fox, together the two are a formidable match for any man, young or old. I charge you now, before both God and man, to hold firm the vows you have spoken, the covenant that you and Siana have made with your lips and have sealed in your hearts. Be of noble character. Help those in need. Be generous in all things. Give and do not take. You have been granted much. Use your strength for the good of others, to the glory of your Lord. Someday you will pursue a cause far greater than yourself, much will be asked of you. I encourage you my son, be willing to give what is asked. Alpin's words fell upon his sons like a mantle of great weight. For Chorich, the pride of his father and the expectation of courage lit his heart as though a torch had been passed to him and pressed firm against his chest. He was not alone. Kenneth had abandoned Arabella's rejection and had locked his attention on the man standing before him, his father's words had fallen upon his ears with a searing, sobering conviction. Aidan, too, was struck by his father's exhortation. 
his mind retreated back to that cool autumn morning in the barley field when he was a boy. It was the last day he and his brothers stood with Droston. Droston had taken up the mantle and lived the very words their father had spoken. Aidan felt a constriction in his throat. He labored to swallow as his chest heaved in and out. Admiration for his brothers overwhelmed him. Droston and Chorich had come so far, proving themselves men. He wondered if he could ever attain such heights. By this time the sun was setting behind the western hills, and only the moon on the far horizon and the amber light of the fires remained. The flames illuminated Alpin's face as he continued to speak, Lathan, men of Milton and men of Cashel and Renton, to all Dowriardans who have joined us, we are Scots. We are a people of a long and cherished heritage. Our forefathers have toiled much for this beautiful land we call Dowriada. I am grateful for the bonds we have forged this day. I am grateful for each family here tonight. Friends who have travelled from distant villages across our lands, I thank you all. Alpin paused for a moment. He stared blankly into the distance, distracted. With a calm demeanour, he returned his focus to his audience and lifted his glass, then his eyes turned to Chorich and Siana, seemingly babes. He offered a toast, May your days be bright, prosperous, and filled with happiness. May your affections bind your spirits as one and grant your hearts peace. He turned to the others, I beg of you, continue your merriment on this, the finest of nights. The Dowriardans resumed, clinking their glasses and consuming their wine. Alpin placed his wine glass on the table and removed himself from his dinner guests, troubled by the distraction in the distance. Striding past the fires, he stepped into the darkness of the barley field. The light of the moon shined down on a moving silhouette, advancing quickly through the trees. The silhouette broke from the woods, and a man on a horse materialized. He rode with purpose, his destination was evident, the wedding feast. Instinctively, Alpin released a sharp whistle. The rider's head swiveled and then the horse turned. An eerie feeling crept over Alpin. His hand moved to his waist to find his knife, but it wasn't there. He planted his feet and prepared for the horse and rider. When the man arrived, he tugged the reins of his horse and stopped the beast ten feet from Alpin. The man glanced at the fires and then peered down at Alpin, the moonlight exposing a maze of painted images on the man's arms and neck. Alpin's fears were confirmed. Picked, Alpin said. What is it you seek? Constantine took notice of Alpin's absence. He approached Luag and Lathan as the two lingered beside a nearby fire, conversing over wine. Have you seen Alpin? Constantine asked, I can't find him. Luag turned toward the tables and then glanced at the other fire. No, I haven't seen him since he spoke. Is something wrong? No. I was going to ask him. Is that him in the field? Lathan interrupted. Constantine turned in the direction Lathan was pointing. It may be, Constantine muttered. He squinted to improve his sight and then started toward the figure. Cousin, why do I find you alone in the dark? Constantine called out as he approached Alpin. Alpin turned to Constantine but said nothing. Are you growing soft? Can you not handle these tender moments? Constantine said with a grin. Luag, following behind with Lathan, chuckled at Constantine's remark. I wish it were only that, Alpin replied. What's troubling you? Luag asked. 
I assume you didn't see the rider. Rider. Yes, a Pict. A Pict, Luard replied, what was a Pict doing here in Renton? He came with news from the north. Viking ships have reached our lands and they have brought war to the isles along our northwestern shores. The Picts in the northeast fear they may be coming east. How can we be certain they're Vikings? Picts can't be trusted, Luag muttered. The Picts have seen their ships. You men know of our father's stories. Their ships are distinct. From the description, they are Vikings, Alpin said. He eyed his three companions. Be sure of this, any Viking is a threat to our land and our people, they are killers, merciless killers. Should they venture south into Dalriada, God help us. Alpin turned and glimpsed the rider departing beneath the moonlight. Then the shadowy form altogether disappeared into the distant trees.